Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. It's in your laptop, your phone, your electric car. It's in numerous devices we use daily. Cobalt is everywhere, and 60% of the world's cobalt deposits are located in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The demand for cobalt increased 30% from 2016 through 2020 and is continuing to increase. Cobalt literally powers our world, yet the country from which it is mined lacks electricity for 90% of its households. Despite the DRC being rich in natural resources, including freshwater and minerals, with deposits estimated at around $24 trillion, including large deposits of gold, diamonds, coltan, uranium, and none the least, cobalt, the DRC ranks 175th out of 189 countries on the 2020 Human Development Index. It is currently in a humanitarian crisis, with the World Food Program estimating that one in five people have food insecurity and 43% of children are malnourished. It is in this context of carrier's destitution that children, who despite not being legally allowed to do so, work all day in extremely hazardous conditions to mine cobalt. They imperil themselves, working without any protective gear and without proper equipment, exposed to chemicals that would make them chronically ill if they didn't die first from being trapped in fallen makeshift tunnels. Many children have lost limbs and can no longer walk. This is another carrier's chapter in the cruel book of the Congo, from enslaving millions of Congolese to King Leopold's Holocaust, in which he massacred 10 to 15 million Congolese and amputated millions in his rapacity for rubber, to the war in the 90s that killed over 3 million people, to the continuing conflict between militias and the DRC. The Congo Stygian history continues. Perhaps things would have been different if the venerable Patrice Lamumba, the DRC's first democratically elected prime minister, an anti-imperialist, a pan-Africanist, a Marxist who understood there was no real independence if Western nations continued to control Africans' resources, was not assassinated 60 years ago with the aid of Belgium and the US that supported their Western puppet Mobutu. The DRC continues to bleed. Africa continues to bleed because this destitution, exploitation and continued colonialism is not limited to the DRC. Over a million and a half trafficked children work in Cote d'Ivoire on cocoa farms. Enslaved children in 2021 continue to make chocolate. Last year, before the Supreme Court, Nestle and the US government as amicus, a position that the Biden administration has to its embarrassment not withdrawn, argued that US corporations should not be liable for violations of the laws of nations under the Alien Tort Statute. This is a travesty. If we don't hold our corporations accountable, who will? Terry Collingsworth, the Executive Director of International Rights Advocates, has fought for decades to hold our corporations accountable for human rights abuse abroad. From Unical's use of enslaved people in Burma to build their pipeline, to the children enslaved for our chocolate, and the children forced to risk maiming, chronic illness and death each day to mine cobalt for our laptops, phones and cars. I recently spoke to Terry about his cases on behalf of these child plaintiffs and on the impending decision by the Supreme Court whether our corporations will continue to be liable under the ATS or be given a carte blanche by our judiciary for human rights abuse abroad. Welcome to Gravity, Terry. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, It's fantastic to have you on again because you continue to do such important work at International Rights Advocates. And you're better placed than me to uh, describe the amazing work that you do there. So if you could please tell our audience 
about your organization and the cases that you currently have and that you have taken to court. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, we are I, International Rights Advocates. We abbreviate IR Advocates, and that's our website, iradvocates.org, if anyone wants more information. But we're a unique uh, human rights organization in that we pretty much only are working on human rights abuses through litigation. Uh, there was a, There's a real niche there because uh, these cases require international expertise and contacts as well as litigation experience, and our organization was able to fill that niche. Uh, we brought, uh, back in 1996, uh, the very first human rights case against a U.S. company uh, under the Alien Tort Statute, the ATS, which is something that we use a lot of after we pioneered its use. And this first case was, uni was against Unical, Union Oil of California, and Total, the French oil giant, and they were building a gas pipeline across Burma. Uh, to transport their natural gas that they had discovered there over to Thailand, where most of it was sold. And what happened, the military regime back then uh, is pretty much as brutal as the current one, and they were contracted with the two companies to clear the right-of-way for this pipeline. So the military did what they were famous for. Uh, they went to villages, they rounded up people at gunpoint, and they made them clear the jungle for this pipeline. And they not only cleared the jungle, but they acted as human minesweepers, and many people died, many people were abused by the soldiers. Uh, some of them escaped into Thailand, and we were able, through our contacts, to hear from them, and I went there to interview the people, and we ultimately filed this case. And after about seven years of uh, hard litigation, uh, we were about to go to trial, and then the company settled with us. We reached a voluntary agreement to resolve the cases, and uh, it was a pretty happy ending for the 13 plaintiffs that uh, we were participating in representing. Um, we were very disappointed, though, that we wanted the trial. We wanted to go to trial to really promote the use of human rights as a legal tool, uh, but un unfortunately when you're a lawyer and the defendant offers your client a large sum of money and they say yes, uh, that's the end of the case. So that's how we got started doing the litigation and then realizing that it was such an important tool. I've brought many cases across the years uh, against some of the biggest corporations out there Currently, we're focused primarily on two areas. Uh, I'm devoting as much of my time as I can to the trafficking and, and use of children uh, to produce anything in the global economy. And we have two big cases, one against some cocoa companies uh, for trafficked and forced child labor in Cote d'Ivoire. And uh, we have a case against a bunch of tech companies that we'll talk about in more detail uh, for using children to mine cobalt, that's an essential element for their uh, lithium-ion batteries. And then we have several cases down in Colombia where many multinational companies were using paramilitary groups, particularly the right-wing uh, terrorist organization called the AUC, 
to provide what they called euphemistically security for the companies. But in fact, uh, the AUC was being paid by several major corporations to uh, push the guerrilla groups out of their areas of operation. And in doing that, the paramilitaries killed thousands of people. The two pending cases we have in that area are one against Chiquita Bananas. Uh, it's called Chiquita Brands International. And the second is against Drum and Coal, two companies that paid the paramilitaries tremendous sums of money to drive the guerrilla groups off of their property. For Chiquita, it was their banana plantations. And for Drummond, they have a giant coal mine in Colombia. And then they have about 110 miles of rail line that they're protecting. Hired hitmen, and they murdered anyone in those areas who was suspected of collaborating with uh, the guerrilla groups during the Civil War. So as we are a very small organization and we have to really choose our cases, I have made the commitment because I think it's the most egregious activity going on in the global economy to really focus as much time as I can on dealing with the abuse of children, either through trafficking or forced labor or even enslavement, which is occurring in the cocoa supply chains of all of your favorite brands. <laughs> Yes, our favorite brands. Uh, and of course, uh, Nestle has, um, while it's continuing to use child labor in Cote d'Ivoire, and knowingly so, has vociferously said, Black Lives Matter. It's just uh, extremely nauseating. It really is. And the other companies have too, uh, Cargill and uh, Hershey and Mars, I know, are among the companies that have used social media to say Black Lives Matter. And I got so angry when I saw that Nestle and Cargill had said that, that I, co I wrote an article with Mickey Mastrati, who's made several films about the evils of the cocoa sector in Cote d'Ivoire. And we wrote an article together, invented together, and have tried to get people to uh, use social media to, to go after these companies and say, how dare you say Black Lives Matter? I believe that the people we represent and that are harvesting your cocoa are black lives. In fact, they're African and they're children and you don't seem to care about them. <laughs> yep. It's put your money where your mouth is. So if that is what you really believe, then implement the practices that would help eradicate child slave labor because these children are trafficked. But we will talk about uh, that more. I wanted to first uh, talk about your case against Apple, Alphabet, Tesla, Dell, and Microsoft for uh, the mining of cobalt by children in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And before we discuss the case, I wanted to first discuss the context of the matter because uh, the DRC is one of the absolute poorest countries in the world, and yet it literally powers our world. It has 60% of the world's supply of cobalt, which is essential to lithium-ion rechargeable batteries. And we use cobalt devices every day. In fact, I am using cobalt right now <laughs> in order to interview you. So it's quite tragic. And uh, it's really just uh, a continuation of the DRC's Stygian history of exploitation. The DRC 
has been uh, known as the curse of a rich country and it ends up being poor, but it's actually the curse of being ex- exploited throughout its history. The slave trade, there was the inaptly named Congo Free State where uh, King Leopold II, uh, Belgium's king at the time, committed genocide for rubber. He killed over 15 million people and he maimed more. And Mark Twain wrote a brilliant, ironic apologia, soliloquy of the king, where he says, well, the circumstances make that discipline necessary because in the end, all, yeah, all that mattered were the king's coffers. So to what extent is the Congo still practically a colonial state? Yes, thanks for that background. Most people don't know the horrible history of the DRC. Uh, for those interested in one of the most uh, just compelling histories of the area, I would highly recommend a book called King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild. And he does trace uh, the abuse in uh, the Congo back before even King Leopold because it was a fertile area for rounding up slaves for the slave trade, as, as you mentioned. Um, I think today it's just a logical consequence of a people that have been exploited first by colonialists and then a series of extremely corrupt local presidents that uh, compete to have the largest Swiss bank accounts in the billions of dollars. So it's a very rich country. It has one of the worst distributions of the resources in the world. And it is also comes up uh, on everyone's top one or two lists of the most corrupt countries on earth. So there's a large population that is starving. They were first exploited by outside forces, European uh, colonial powers. And then when they finally got their independence, they were visited with uh, a series of extremely corrupt and brutal presidents. So they've never had a chance to share in their country's vast wealth. They have copper, they have some oil, they had diamonds, but this uh, tech sector is now uh, really fueling the demand for different minerals in addition to cobalt that uh, the DRC has. And I I do want to flag that uh, in every single one of the gadgets that we use, your iPhone, your Samsung phone, whatever kind of phone, it has a lithium-ion battery that, that's the rechargeable kind, uh, and they all need cobalt, and most of the world's cobalt, as you mentioned, comes from the DRC. I think even more ironically, uh, this great push that is being emphasized here in the United States by President Biden's plans for greening of America uh, the, the all electric vehicles out there, the Tesla and any other brand, Ford's making some now, of course, I won't list all the car companies, but any electric vehicle relies upon cobalt for their large uh, lithium ion rechargeable batteries. When we first uh, sued, and we'll get into more details, but Tesla, uh, the What's just so infuriating is they present themselves as this magic new green company that's going to save the world through its environmental sensitivity. And 
it all Tesla cars run on blood cobalt. And when we sued Tesla, they first denied that there was any cobalt in their, any blood cobalt in their supply chains. And then literally a month later, they bought a giant share of Glencore, one of the worst companies operating in the DRC and a company that we have repeatedly shown to be using child miners to uh, get some of their cobalt. So, these, the, the, the area where the mines are is extremely poor. Uh, this strip mining and tree removal have ruined their own environment while they're subjected to the efforts of multinational companies to make the world greener. It is just a horrible lie. Yes. I mean, the contradiction and the hypocrisy is just uh, it, it's so it's unpalatable, really. I mean, the concentrations of cobalt and other minerals in the water and the soil there uh, is euphemistically, you could say it has a detrimental health effect. Uh, the air is noxious. We are polluting the DRC immensely in order to have better air here. Apart from the environmental disaster, the ILO has stated that cobalt mining in the DRC is one of the worst forms of child labor. And part of that is that the children work all day without any protective equipment. They're working in extremely hazardous conditions, carrying uh, very heavy sacks. Uh, but also, as far as I understand, they're going into tunnels that are makeshift tunnels that aren't uh, properly secured. May you please tell us more about the health risks of these children, including the high exposure to cobalt and what hard metal lung disease is? Yes, thank you. Uh, well, yeah, you cannot overstate how horrible it is there. Um, I have been doing human rights work for going on uh, 30 years. And when I was invited by a local organization called Alternatives Plus to come to the DRC to look at this situation, um, uh, even I, I've seen everything, believe me. I've interviewed people who had their family members chopped up by paramilitaries with chainsaws in Colombia. But this going to the DRC was the worst experience I've had emotionally. Uh, just because every victim is a child and they're so innocent looking. And when I arrived to first start interviewing people, we rented a, a, a off-the-road uh, motel-type place and it had a big courtyard. And my my local partners, upon my direction, had rounded up a bunch of families who had uh, someone lost, uh, either a child killed or maimed in a mining accident. And when I got there, there were about uh, at least a hundred people that and including children who were severely maimed, legs amputated, pelvises crushed, and they they just had nothing and they they came to me and asked me to help them by bringing a lawsuit uh, but I left there feeling like if i if we don't win this case and at least bring attention to this problem. Uh, they've got nothing else. Uh, there's no medical care. It's a horrible situation. But going back to your specific question, yeah, the because of the strip mining and other forms of mining that these co companies are doing, and it's all, they call it the copper belt uh, around an area called Kowazi, uh, they also have copper and other minerals there. So it's it's not just cobalt that's being mined. So there are different actors. 
Uh, but it it looks like the moon, like what I would think the moon looked like. There's giant craters. Uh, there's not a tree in sight because they've killed them all. There's these big pits that people are uh, climbing into to then begin mining. And so as you described, the the typical mine is just a hole in the tunnel dug into the side of a uh, a rock face. But it's not real rock. It's more like shale. So it's crumbly. And so these kids are digging in and going into these tunnels 50 meters in. And uh, there's no supports, not one beam, not one helmet, nothing. And uh, no oxygen support. They're breathing this dust. And as you mentioned, uh, it has uh, fibers. It could, uh, it has dangerous chemicals. Uh, no one's done any studies of uh, the long-term health effects of this on anyone that I'm aware of, but uh, experts say that, yeah, this would cause something like black lung or asbestosis because of the nature of the fibers these people are, are forced to breathe. But the bigger concern for all of them is just that it's so, so dangerous and there's no safety precautions taken whatsoever. The very first person I interviewed, we call her Jane Doe One. Uh, she had lost her son who died in a, in a mining accident, and they, they didn't even recover the bodies. A bunch of other kids were killed. What happens is they tunnel in, and there's going to be, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, there's going to be a tunnel collapse, and it's common. There's no local media. There's They're all in the pocket of the government. There's no accountability at all. The officials are all in the take of these companies as well. If you asked how come something, I did ask, how come something's not being done? People look at you as if you're an idiot. But the Jane Doe one, when she, I finished interviewing her, she was, of course, in tears and telling the story of her dead son. And then she said, and this is quoted in our complaint, she said, please help us. They're killing us like dogs. So everyone knows that it's a systematic uh, uh, killing and maiming of these children. Every kid knows someone who's either died or been maimed in a mining accident. And every kid doing the work today knows that other kids have done this and died or have been maimed. So can you imagine, and I did explore this with the people I interviewed, just the emotional trauma of being so desperately poor that you're going to risk your life for a dollar a day, knowing that if you do it long enough, you're going to either die or be maimed. And so when one of these tunnels collapses, it's not, it's not a, there's no chance you're just going to like get a scratch or a cut. You're either going to die or you're going to be maimed because of the tremendous weight of this rock is falling on your body. And there, we heard several stories of 40, 50 people being in a mine collapse and it was such a, uh, an enormous uh, collapse that they didn't even find the bodies. So there are plenty of widows and mothers that have lost family members and didn't even recover the body. The companies that are the head of the mining operations there, mostly Glencore and Huayu, they do not provide any medical assistance. They do not provide any uh, other form of assistance to a family that has someone killed. Uh, ju they just view these uh, poor, poor children mostly as uh, expendable parts of the machine that they know 
they will be able to replenish simply by the fact that everyone living in this area is starving. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And they call this, I believe, um, artisanal mining, which seems to be an egregious euphemism yeah. for what is yeah. occurring. Uh, yeah, I, I even the couple of the NGOs that are working on it have adopted the industry's term uh, artisanal mining, and it makes it sound like, you know, it's like craft coffee or, uh, you know, something like that. But no, artisanal means by hand, and that means you're going to be dead or severely maimed. It's uh, There's no happy ending to that if you are, are called an artisanal miner. So the, the main claim in the case, the main statutory claim is under the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, and you also have some common law claims, uh, negligence and unjust enrichment. Um, may you please tell our audience about the TVPRA and also how these businesses, now that's Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, Dell, and Tesla, Alphabet being the parent company of Google uh, and other companies, how have these businesses knowingly retained and continue to retain the benefit of cheaper cobalt, an essential mineral for their products, as a result of children working in the mines in extremely hazardous conditions for uh, virtually no pay, maybe a dollar or so a day. Yes. Um, the, um, the statute itself, uh, we'll abbreviate TVPRA, uh, was first passed in 1990, President Clinton at the time signed it, and it was initially just a criminal statute, and it was designed mainly for sex trafficking and uh, the the abuse of uh, housemaids and other situations like that. Uh, no, no one really had their eye on a bigger use for the statute. Uh, it was passed with huge uh, bipartisan support. Lots of Republicans liked it because the the Christian element of the party was, felt good about helping prevent sex trafficking. You say the word sex around Republican uh, congressmen and they, they leap to your aid. Um, I don't know, that's a repression of something usually, but, uh, uh, but it passed with a huge uh, majority. And since then, it's been amended several times. And the last one that I'm aware of was in uh, 2016. But the main amendments, uh, it was solely a criminal provision, so you had to rely on law enforcement, which can be discretionary, if you will. So that was one serious problem. So the main amendments also created a parallel structure to allow a private right of action, a civil lawsuit for damages if you are a victim of uh, uh, the trafficking and forced labor that is defined by the statute. It also expressly extended the statute extraterritorially, which is somewhat unusual for U.S. law that they realized that, well, a lot of the trafficking is going on outside of the country. So for the law to be effective, it needs to be applicable also outside of the country. And then it has, as our, our complaint, which is available on our website, iradvocates.org, the complaint lays out there are only three elements to satisfying the statute in a civil case, and I, I, I just think it was essentially designed for these kinds of supply chain cases. In fact, uh, a number of members of Congress 
filed an amicus brief in our Supreme Court case that we'll get to uh, to talk about against Nestle in the cocoa sector. Uh, they filed an amicus brief pointing out that the TVPRA applies extraterritorially and was intended to have really broad appeal to reach issues like supply chains. So we're on solid ground in saying that this statute appears to be perfect for addressing the kinds of situations like cobalt mining. It has only three elements. Uh, the first is there has to be substantive trafficking or forced labor violations. Uh, it doesn't have to be children. It just has to be trafficking and, and or forced labor. So here uh, we, we establish in the complaint that a lot of the children were subjected to a form of trafficking. They were recruited to go to a particular mine and then they worked under the direction of sort of the local mob boss person who was organizing this for one of the two large companies, Glencore or Huayu. And then we have several theories on why this is also forced labor. Uh, so I, I do need to make clear that the forced labor point is a tad challenging, but we've met the challenge because these kids don't have to be imprisoned or held by guns. They come back after their first day of work because they're essentially told you either continue working or you will starve and you'll never get work in this area again. And most of my clients said something like that was told to them. Um, but it's, it's forced labor, I think, because we have so many laws that say children can't consent to hazardous or dangerous activities. We have laws saying children can't consent to a sexual relationship. Children can't consent to being trafficked or, or traveling across state lines. The list is long. They can't uh, use firearms. They can't smoke. They can't drink uh, legally. And so our argument is children can't consent at all. And the fact that they're doing work that everyone agrees is, uh, is within the definition of the ILO's worst forms of child labor in Convention Number 182, that they simply aren't legally able to consent to doing this kind of ultra dangerous activity. Uh, we also uh, have instances where there was real coercion. They, you know, the kids were told, you know, you go work here, you go in that hole, and, and those sorts of directions that they felt they had no choice to, to uh, decline. So some of them were trafficked. We think all of them were forced under a legal definition to work. That's element number one. The second element is that there has to be a venture. Uh, and the statute in the criminal provisions is very clear that a venture is not a legal agreement. It's just a loose network of companies or people that are working together to facilitate the business at issue. So we think particularly in Cobalt, uh, there's, there's much more than that, that each of the tech companies that we've sued has contractual relationships uh, with the mining companies. Each of these companies claims that, in fact, they have uh, policies against child labor and that they're on the ground implementing those policies. So that shows they have the at least the potential to control what's going on. We don't think they're doing a thing to make sure the children aren't working because otherwise they, they wouldn't be. <laughs> and uh, so we have a venture of the cobalt mining sector with the the big tech companies playing an essential role. And then the last element, as you mentioned, 
we have to show that uh, the companies realized a benefit from their participation in the venture. And we allege that they, there's really two benefits. One, they have a steady, reliable source of cobalt by having a relationship with either Glencore or Huayu, either one or both, that it's, it's having the reliable connection because they need that cobalt. And as I mentioned, Tesla took that a step further and even bought a share of Glencore's supply chain of cobalt to ensure its steady source of this. And second, we don't we will hire an economist, but it's pretty obvious to me that one of the other benefits is that the price of cobalt is kept low uh, by having uh, this huge artisanal that's their term again, uh, cobalt mining sector where the workers are paid a dollar a day. Uh, so that is reflective of the uh, the ultimate price uh, of, of the cobalt. The higher the labor costs, the higher the price of cobalt. We'll get economists all day long to point that out to a, a jury. So the statute has those three elements. We've satisfied those elements, and we are pretty confident that we're ultimately going to prevail. Just as an update uh, since the last time we spoke, uh, the briefing, so the companies all collectively filed one motion to dismiss. So they're all cooperating. They're trying to throw the case out, and they're arguing that they just didn't know uh, and that they didn't have uh, uh, the right kind of venture relationship with uh, the mining companies to be liable. On the we-didn't-know point, that is so cynical. It's laughable, really. But they have these policies that they tell the judge about that gives them the right to inspect and make sure that their policy against child labor uh, is not violated. So they're basically arguing that, well, see, this piece of paper says there shouldn't be child labor. We Then uh, there wasn't. Uh, they, they don't claim that they went there, that they, they established with their own eyes, with their own satellites, with their own drones that there's no child labor. They just said, well, we have this policy. So we, we clearly, we didn't want child labor. And that fortunately for us is not what the standard is. There's all kinds of ways you can acquire knowledge. But the one we rely- too, right? The knowledge is, constr- the, the knowledge test is also constructive too. It's like, is, isn't it no or ought to have known? And therefore, if they had the right to inspect, um, and decided not to inspect because if they did, they would uh, then have actual knowledge. Doesn't that meet the test? Absolutely. And we argued that. But we have even more than that because Amnesty International in 2016 published just a devastating report about what these companies are doing, specifically these companies. Um and they really targeted Apple because Apple lied to Amnesty about whether it was using Huawei. They said they weren't. And then uh, they ultimately were found to be using uh, Huawei. Uh, other instances like that, there are a lot of details. But each of them were asked about why they're not doing more uh, to uh, stop child labor. And they gave evasive answers or refused to answer. Uh, so at, at the earliest or sorry, the latest possible point, that they acquired this constructive knowledge was when Amnesty asked them why there were so many children getting killed and maimed in their cobalt supply chains. That's when they had knowledge. I had a little fun with Google in in writing our response because Google likewise said, well, we didn't really know. And I said, in the brief, I said, Google could have easily found 
more information. All you have to do is Google child labor cobalt. And in fact, if you do, you'll see that there are newspaper reports, the amnesty report, there's just a list, pages of information about the extent of the abuse of children in cobalt. So for Google to say they didn't know is just beyond laughable. So so that's their main defense. And then they're saying also that uh, they're not in a venture. And they're trying to interpret venture as a written, uh, clear agreement to uh, uh, abuse children. That's that's their ridiculous argument. And that's not necessary under the statute either. So the briefing is complete. I responded to their motion to dismiss. They replied to my response, and that was all finished on December 16th, 2020, and we are now still waiting for the judge to make that initial decision of whether the case can move forward. And if we win that, as we should, um, that itself will be a huge victory because I will then get discovery rights under our civil procedure rules, which means I can get I can ask them to give me every document in their entire uh, operation about their cobalt supply chains. We'll get real information about their knowledge. I know they all have reports, internal reports. And we also get to depose all these fancy uh, tech executives and ask them uh, uh, how, how, when, what they knew and when they knew it <laughs> about their maiming and killing of children. So uh, for, for lawyers like me working on human rights, that would be fun. It would be rewarding. I can't wait to sit across the table from that smirking Elon Musk and ask him some very pointed questions about his own knowledge. Mm, I think you're in good stead, too, to survive. Your response to their opposition was amazing. And they're focusing on, I don't know why they even bothered to argue that the TVPRA was not extraterritorial. I mean, it just, it's just some of their arguments are just... Uh, you, you would think they would spend more time on uh, issues other than ones that are completely uh, black and white. Frivolous. Yeah, frivolous, and, and, exactly. And, you know, it gives a small human rights legal advocacy group like the IR Advocates uh, you know, just great hope that we're being effective because each of these companies went out and hired one of the giant law firms we have here in the United States with a thousand lawyers that bill a thousand dollars an hour. And we clearly outlawed them in this process. And that makes us feel just terrific that it, we can take on the biggest of the giants and, uh, and make a good showing. And I think we did. And thank you for saying so. Now, one thing that I noticed was that, uh, and that you pointed out in your complaint and in uh, your response to their opposition, was that uh, the defendants claim they had, you know, no knowledge, not even constructive knowledge, and yet they're funding this nonprofit pact. And by the way, it's a terrible name. Whoever came up with it, because it sounds like the name that you would, if a cartel were trying to disguise its clandestine methods, it would use the name Pact, right? And so this nonprofit called Pact, poor, poor choice of name, that has the noble mission of eradicating child labor and cobalt mining in the DRC, is funded by these defendants that apparently have no idea about what's going on. I'm, uh, you know, it's just, it's such a, I'm flummoxed. How, how did they yeah. explain that? Well, they didn't, of course. And uh, uh, we, uh, in talking about this among my colleagues that do this kind of work, 
we we all agree that there is something we call the corporate playbook and these tech companies we thought they'd behave differently than like an oil company. We thought they'd be more concerned about their audience realizing that they're not these woke, uh, environmentally sensitive companies, and they're just capitalists that are as greedy as anybody else has ever been in the history of the world. But we thought they'd at least try to present differently. But the corporate playbook is, I first experienced it, oh man, like, 35, 40 years ago in dealing with Nike when they first moved to uh, Indonesia and had child labor making their shoes. Um, a lot of uh, people my age got their start in this kind of work with a Nike campaign that was started back then. But the first thing they do is they deny. And of course, these companies did for a while. It was impossible to get into the DRC. It was very dangerous. So they just denied it. And then when you catch them, the first time, they will issue a paper policy and say, see, we've now prohibited child labor in our supply chain. All of these tech companies have now done that. And then the third thing they do is they create a fake model program to deceive some people into thinking that, see, we're, we, we've worked on this problem and we fixed it. Here's a picture of this model mine. And so that's where they are right now. And uh, they hire public relations firms to spin this. They hire lawyers to protect them and allow them to continue to do it. But these tech companies are acting just like every other horrible company, and uh, they they have not distinguished themselves in any way except being a lot richer than most companies on the face of the earth. And part of the reason is that they're unscrupulous and will do anything to increase their profits. Uh, I personally went to this packed model mine and uh, it's a very small mine. Uh, it's, you're correct that uh, the, the, the offenders are funding it, which is your first major clue that there's something wrong with the process. I believe they told me that Apple alone gave them a million bucks for this project for one year. And you have to think like, whoa, how many more of those millions could we gather up to actually fix the problem and save some children's lives? Uh, but so the model mine is just a ploy to give people something to look at. Uh, but even so, it was a faulty model mine. They, it was hilarious that one of their things they presented as a, a, an innovation or a way to stop child labor, let's say, is they built this giant electrified fence around the perimeter of the mine. And then you have to go through a, a guarded gate to check in to work. Now, that's not a bad idea. With many other changes, that's probably what will have to be done. The many other changes include paying the adult workers enough that they don't have to work next to their own kids and uh, making sure that the kids uh, are, are, don't have to pay school fees so that they can stay in school. I won't go into the whole list, but it's not a bad idea to prevent kids from working in your mind, to prevent kids from coming through your gate. But we have some photos of this. You could see that the the electrified fence wasn't completely sound. There were places where there wasn't a fence. But I, I was so confident of this that I didn't ask anybody. I walked up to that electrified fence and grabbed it, and sure enough, it wasn't even electrified. I knew it wasn't going to be because you could see that the current there there were gaps in the in the thing going around, so it wouldn't have carried a current. Um, and everyone was shocked, and then they started trying to explain why their 
electrified fence wasn't electrified, but anyways, it's it's just a cynical ploy, and this pact is kind of known for uh, being a corporate apologist organization that'll take the money of corporations and try to help them look good. Yeah, it's it's the same song all over again. Voluntary, voluntary compliance. Don't don't actually force me to do anything. I will voluntarily do it in my own method, yeah. in my own way. Yeah. You can trust me. I only abuse children all day long. (laughs) So the the question that I have about the forced labor, and I think your argument is really strong. Firstly, under U.S. law, child labor is illegal. Under DRC law, child labor is illegal. So how can they consent to something? They can't. So even without any coercion, I think um, it should be because they are children, because they can't consent. It's illegal. They um, are forced into it. But the defendant's argument is, of course, predictably that force under the TVPRA is basically holding a gun to the child's head or intimidating the child other than the fact that they can't go to school, they will starve, and you have these recruiters preying on this. Yes. I wanted to address just, I guess it's more of a quasi-philosophical question about our legal system, but I've always found this positive-negative distinction really problematic, and it's at the heart of the contradiction of our, um, it's the linchpin of our stratified unequal society. We have a system of law which purports that all people are equal, but, and, and this is the telling uh, phrase. It ends with that everyone is equal under the law, implying that we aren't equal socially and we're not. And it's the Bentham idea of negative liberty that you're not forced into labor because of hunger, but only if there is a gun to your head or something similar. But the thing is, is not hunger a compelling force? Is not hunger even a physical force? And the issue is that the holder of the gun can be identified, but the cause of hunger is diffused because it's structural in nature. And our system implicitly accepts some contextual coercion. Actually, sorry, it's not just implicit because under the 13th Amendment, it's expressed, right? It explicitly accepts voluntary servitude, which I think is an oxymoron if I've ever heard one. (laughs) Is the way forward to always attack this contradiction between the liberal bourgeois basis of our legal system that we're supposedly all equal and our economic capitalist system, which exposes this contradiction because of this acceptance of some level of contextual coercion, or is it problematic because the judge, you know, the the judge won't go for it and because there has to be an acceptable level of contextual coercion as long as we live in a capitalist system? Yes. Well, that's, you put it very well. And, uh, you can just look around any major city to see the, the inequities that hurt people, that harm people, that how, how close do they live to a, a smelter or a freeway or et cetera, because they, they're not equal economically. They have to, uh, accept housing that could endanger their lives, for example. Um, I, 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 we'll, we'll see what this judge does. But I have some uh, analogies ready if we ever have an, an oral argument. But I don't think many people would disagree that uh, if uh, you, there's a hungry child and you offer them a 
some food to get in your car and you're a trafficker and a molester, I don't think anyone would have any problem grasping that uh, that was a form of coercion. This is just happening on a larger scale, as you pointed out, because of the the horrible structural inequities in the the DRC. But I think one-on-one you could accept that each of these kids, if they were lured into a car, uh, with food when they were hungry would have been coerced. Um, we recently found a line of cases that will be helpful in, in this and other cases in which judges have found that taking advantage of a drug addict's addiction to get them to become a, a prostitute or do other things against their will is also a form of coercion. So I think it's even stronger. I think you have a stronger need for food when you're starving Mel, let's just even if they're equivalent, but the courts seem to be able to grasp that if you offer a heroin addict heroin to be a prostitute, uh, that that's coercion. So I'm hopeful that we have some. It doesn't even require compassion. It just requires a common sense look at what really is the dynamic here. Right. Other than uh, what they're saying is, oh, cruel circumstance. It's it's terrible. We abhor the child labor and we abhor the conditions that they live under and can't go to school. But it's got nothing to do with us. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not taking we're, advantage of it. Yeah. Um, well, you helped create RugMark, which certifies that rugs were not made by child labor, which is extremely important. And um, I'm thinking, should we create a designation perhaps for cobalt? And if not... What are some best practices that we want U.S. companies to implement? And by implement, I mean not just post on their websites, but actually implement so that the cobalt that ends up in our numerous devices that we use each day is not the result of children being denied in education, being exposed to harsh chemicals and being maimed and killed in makeshift tunnels. Yes, that's a great question. Thank you. I I just will uh, clarify for your listeners that we started RugMark, uh, oh, probably about 25 years ago for, as a certification and monitoring system in hand-knotted carpets of South Asia. It has since grown and grown stronger, and there was a name change uh, about five, six years ago, and it is now called Goodweave uh, because they're doing textiles, and they're even doing, they have a new division where they're offering to come into new situations like the one we're facing. Uh, and uh, serve as a consulting body because they have great experience in setting up monitoring protocols. But in in talking about what are some of the best practices for cobalt, step one in any analysis has to be that these companies, Apple, Tesla, Google, uh, Dell, and Microsoft, they either are trillion-dollar companies or almost trillion-dollar companies. Microsoft and Apple are for sure. Tesla probably will get there soon. But anyways, they have all the money in the world. So resources should not be a problem. Uh, and and second, the the cheap cobalt that they're getting is the same cobalt they're all using. So if the price of cobalt has to go up a tiny bit because we're going to implement uh, some practices that do cost money. I don't think that the consumers of a $110,000 Tesla are going to mind if it's $110,005 because it wouldn't be a huge increase that would be passed on to consumers. And I think that the consumers of all of these gadgets uh, 
you know, an iPhone costs a thousand dollars now, and computers are certainly upwards of that. I think every single person operating one of these, whether it's a car or a computer, would find some value in knowing that even if they have to pay a little bit more, it's because there's no longer blood cobalt in the supply chain and children are not being killed and maimed. That's a premise that, again, I thought the companies would grasp right away instead of lawyering up to say, all right, let's fix this because we want our customers to feel good about using our very expensive uh, electronics products. But however we get the money, whether it's the companies themselves, and that should be part of it, or a price increase in cobalt that's going to affect them all. There, no one's going to lose a competitive advantage. Uh, when, if you have a, a pot of money, what could you do? Well, first of all, uh, everyone agrees that the wages paid to adult workers need to be substantially increased so that they are not also working side by side with their own children for a dollar a day to, to risk your life. Uh, and that that's that's an easy fix. But as that model Matushi mine at least realized for purposes of public consumption, then you have to regularize the employment. You have to make sure that there are employees, not people who are, are, are being brought in by these sleazy labor brokers to work for a day or two, real employees that get checked in so that it's regularized employment. And that's, that's, that's almost cost-free, if not cost-free. Then you certainly need to spend some money on making these mine sites safe, and that includes using protective equipment for the workers, but also using the kinds of techniques that people mining in Europe and the United States have been using for 200 years of, of how to shore up a tunnel with beams, how to add lighting and oxygen so that it's safe, et cetera, along with personal protective equipment. And then uh, we would need, we'd need a, quite a bit of money to repair the damage, both to the people and to the environment, that no one was regulating anything when they turned uh, the, the mining belt into a moonscape, and no one was regulating anything when so many of the people that live in those areas have suffered from pollution, as well as the more direct forms of, of pollution and harm to the miners themselves. So that would cost money, but that is the way Rugmark did it, uh, is to have a small tax on every finished product. This could be for every bag of cobalt, uh, would be paid into a third-party uh, monitoring and rehabilitation program just like Rugmark slash Goodweave that would be responsible with the money raised to uh, ensure that the communities are returned to the state they were in or better than when this horrible mining uh, process began. And then finally, yes, you could easily, you could easily have a, uh, a label indicating that this bag of cobalt was mined properly. Uh, and that would be a lot easier to do than Rugmark, where we had to ride motorcycles all over rural India trying to find uh, looms that were hidden in barns and sheds. Uh, this this mining entity is very concentrated in one geographic area they call the Copper Belt in the DRC, so that it would be easy to have monitoring occurring in any of the mines that are operating there, and to have 
with particularly with these tech companies, uh, some surveillance from satellites and drones. In fact, I had the pleasure of addressing the last annual shareholders meeting of Tesla. Uh, a group of nuns uh, bought some stock that would that allowed them to propose a shareholder resolution to improve Tesla's human rights policies and practices. And they asked me to speak on the resolution at the meeting. And after informing the shareholders of all of the problems in the maiming and killing of children, uh, Elon Musk was sitting there listening to me, me make this presentation. I was remote because of COVID. Um, I said, uh, and if Elon Musk really wants to end child labor like his paper policy says so, he'd have a satellite or a drone hovering over every mine that he knows they're getting their cobalt from, because that would pretty much clear up what's going on on the ground, wouldn't it? And uh, instead of Tesla jumping to make some improvements, uh, I ended up getting hate tweets for quite a while from all of Elon's fanboys. But uh, it, it really would be fairly simple to prevent further child labor with the technology of the defendants in this case. All right, and their economic power. Yes. They have a lot yes. of leverage. If they wanted to get more expensive cobalt, which I'm sure they would turn to their consumers and their consumers would probably uh, not even bat an eyelid or uh, would prefer that they can buy an iPhone that's not made by children. <laughs> you, no children have been maimed or killed in the making of your device. Yes. And and one thing to again talking about you know would there be a price increase maybe not but the amount of cobalt and we're going to have an economist uh, once we get through this motion to dismiss phase uh, then we can start spending money on things like economists uh, we're going to have someone analyze like if a kid fills up this sack they weigh about seventy five pounds I lifted one up and it was very heavy that these kids are lugging around. If a kid mines the cobalt and carries this sack that is 75 pounds of cobalt, it's rock. There's cobalt in the rocks. Uh, how much of that sack uh, is actually going into one phone? I, I, it's not much. It might be a rock or two out of this giant sack. So it's a negligible amount of cobalt that is needed for these batteries. The batteries are tiny except for the cars. And uh, I'm sure that this this wouldn't be noticeable to the consumer. But I also agree that every one of the people that are buying these fancy futuristic gadgets from these companies would sure like to know that uh, no children were harmed in the making of this phone. I'd like now to move from cobalt to uh, chocolate. We previously discussed uh, your ATS case against Nestle in Chained to Chocolate uh, a few years ago. And you had an ATS case against Nestle and Cargill for the use of child slave labor in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. On February 12th this year, you filed a TVPRA claim in which you've claimed that despite your suit and the media attention against Nestle and Cargill years ago, which is currently pending for the Supreme Court and which we'll get to next, not only are they continuing to have exclusive agreements and financing and training farms that use trafficked children from Burkina Faso and Mali, but that the number of children has significantly increased in their production yeah. supply uh, scheme. So there are nearly one and a half million trafficked children working in hazardous conditions in servitude 
for our chocolate. May you please tell our audience more about this case and how these children are trafficked and used and how these companies know about this and benefit from it. Yes, thank you. Um, Well, to, to just briefly touch on the Supreme Court case. So we filed our first case against Nestle and Cargill in 2005. Uh, and it has been up and down to the courts of appeals twice where we've won both times. <coughs> Excuse me. And then finally, uh, the companies asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review it and they accepted cert. They accepted the review. And what we argued it on, uh, uh, December 1st of 2020. Um, and it's important. I'm going to give a little bit of history, but it's important to just grasp that here in 2021, the main argument that these companies made to the U.S. Supreme Court was that corporations cannot be sued for slavery under international law, that only individual humans could be sued or or held accountable for uh, slavery under international law. We, We answered that issue in our briefs. We argued my partner in the case Paul Hoffman argued it brilliantly but um, in 2021 to have these these so-called leading corporations and their leading lawyers actually stand up in the Supreme Court and say we're unaccountable we are immune from the law because we are corporations in uh, in the era of Citizens United, where corporations can essentially vote with their money, they're seeking to be immune from slavery because they're corporations. The good news is I can report to your listeners that uh, even the more conservative justices like Alito and Thomas seem to find that argument re- repugnant and and horrible. Uh uh, Justice Alito, who is probably the most conservative member of the court among near equals, um, he uh, he walked uh, Nestle's lawyer, Neil Cotchill, by the way, who tries to present himself as like some kind of darling of the progressive side because he was Obama's uh, uh, acting solicitor general. Neil Cotchill, they paid him enough to stand up and argue that corporations are immune from slavery because they're corporations. Uh, Justice Alito asked him, uh, all right, let me get this this right. Uh, so if you have 12 individuals who are enslaving children and making them uh, harvest their cocoa, they could be sued but if they are smart enough to get together and form a corporation, they're suddenly immune. Is that is that what you're saying? And essentially, Kochel had to say, uh, yes, 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 Your Honor. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Uh, it just sounds preposterous to say it. So that we'll get a decision soon. I hope we win on that issue. But I wanted to make sure that no matter what happens in the Supreme Court, that we have an ongoing uh, legal case to try to stop this horrible practice of trafficking and then enslaving children to harvest chocolate of all things, harvest the cocoa that makes chocolate. Uh, And I'd like your listeners to know that going back to 2001, uh, we managed, we we meaning me and my colleagues uh, were documenting the 
child slavery going on in the cocoa sector starting in the late 1990s, not because it was just starting there in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, but because that was the first time people could safely travel there and do research and uh, documentation of this horrible practice. And the, the word safely is not probably the right word, that you could do it uh, and it was still going to be very risky. There had been a civil war going on in these areas and it was very dangerous. And then uh, the companies continued to do business, but it then became dangerous to uh, expose this practice because the government was in on it too and you were at risk of violent retaliation. But people were able to get in there and start doing this research in the late 90s and presented it to Congress. Uh, and in 2001, uh, rep former Representative uh, Engel from uh, New York introduced a bill in the Congress to outlaw the importation of chocolate that was uh, made by child labor and that uh, it required the companies to have a certification and monitoring system uh, in place to assure consumers that their chocolate was not made with uh, the harvesting of the cocoa by children. It passed the House with a resounding majority. Again, bipartisan support. Even some Republicans thought enslaving children was a bad thing, and they voted for this law. Uh, the, the, the bill then had to go, as all laws do, over to the Senate, and we had caught them by surprise in the Congress. It happened very quickly, and uh, there was not much time for the companies to do their normal uh, handiwork. But when it got over to the Senate, they hired the best lobbyists they could find. They even hired Bob Dole and George Mitchell, former senators with great clout, uh, to be their lobbyists. And while it was over there in the Senate, it emerged instead of a mandatory law. Uh, they came up with a voluntary initiative, the kind of thing we were laughing about with the, the pact mind, uh, that uh, the voluntary initiative was called the Harkin Angle Protocol. And in 2001, all of the companies, all the major chocolate companies, Nestle, Mars, Hershey, Cargill, etc., cetera, um, they signed this protocol and they promised to end the use of child labor by the year 2005. And, and so not only did they acknowledge there was child labor, including the worst forms of child labor, uh, they specifically and, and each of the CEOs personally pledged that they were going to end it in their own supply chains. So they admitted they have it. That's knowledge. There's no question that it, by 2001, every single one of these companies had admitted to using the worst forms of child labor in their supply chains. So 2005 rolls around. Well, let me take that back. We went back in 2004. I was certain that nothing would have changed, nothing happened, uh, that they weren't ending child labor. And uh, we began documenting it, and we interviewed kids who had been trafficked from Mali that worked for a period of years and went back to Mali, and they became our six plaintiffs in the case we filed in 2005. Uh, we call them John Doe's one through six, but we were so sure that this was not going to result in anything but a public relations exercise that we uh, were ready to file our case in 2005 when the deadline occurred. Um, I, by the way, Tom Harkin, Senator Tom Harkin, was on our board of directors at the time. 
when the Harkin Angle Protocol was agreed to. Um, I was furious that he cut us off at the knees and, and diluted terribly the, the law that Engels had passed in the Congress. But because he was on our board and he had a lot more, let's say, stature than I did at that time and still today, uh, everyone sort of listened to him when they directed me as a board to wait and see before I took any further action. So I was angry. I knew that they were being suckered. And uh, and yet I was working for an organization that had taken that decision. So I respected the decision. Uh, 2005 rolls around. Not only do they not end child labor, they give themselves an, a, a unilateral extension of time to the year 2010 to end child labor. So I, I didn't consult the board or anything. I had, I had made a commitment that if it's not that I would wait to see what happened in 2005. So we had that lawsuit filed right away. And uh, Senator Harkin had his chief of staff, Rosemary Gutierrez, call me and say something like, uh, you know, Tom, Tom's very unhappy about your filing the suit. Uh, uh, he, he'd like you to withdraw the suit uh, or he's not going to be able to, to continue on your board. And I said, uh, Rosemary, tell, tell Tom it was nice working with him. And we then continued with, with the lawsuit. And it turns out, of course, that a little digging discovered that Cargill was a nice contributor to Tom Harkin because he was from Iowa and they grow a lot of corn there. And uh, so they were one of his uh, big supporters. So we, we, we then pursued the litigation. Uh, while we're pursuing the litigation, we go to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, as I mentioned, and we win twice. And time is ticking away. And when 2010 arrived, the companies gave themselves another extension of time and then another extension of time. They gave themselves a total of four. And now they're promising that by the year 2025, they will reduce by 70 percent uh, their use of child labor in their cocoa supply chains. Now, if you think about that, that is just evil genius. They will have had 24 years of permission to use child slaves while they're working on this mysterious process under which someday, someday, they're going to end their profiting from child slaves. Now, think about that and what kind of human beings are on are running these corporations where they're like high-fiving each other that they figured out a way to keep doing this. And I want to stress that I know for a fact, because I'm on the other side of this case, the case that we have that's in the Supreme Court now, I would estimate that Nestle and Cargill have spent $20 million or so each to pay their lawyers all those years. They could have put that money into a pot to stop child labor when we first brought it to their attention. Uh, they hire lobbyists and PR firms to keep doing this. So it must be real profitable for these companies to be getting the cheap cocoa that is harvested by child slaves because they're spending so much money to keep doing it. And that's okay. just astounding. So when uh, the, the case went to the Supreme Court, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, we, we had our eye on this before, but I decided that we needed to step up our uh, timetable to file a new case under the Trafficking Victims Protection and Reauthorization Act, the TVPRA, the same statute that we were discussing with the Cobalt case, uh, to get it on file. 
And this time we sued Nestle, Cargill, and the other five major cocoa companies that signed the Harkin Angle Protocol and that are continuing to use child slaves. And that includes uh, Hershey, Mars, Barry Calibut, Mondelay, and Olam. Uh, so we sued them all. And uh, that case is just getting underway. We haven't even received any motions or response yet, but it will start heating up soon. And I think it's even a stronger case under the TVPRA than the Cobalt case, which is a strong case because the companies have, since 2001, admitted their use of child slaves. They have formed a formal venture, the World Cocoa Foundation, which they're all members of and control, that is the face of the industry that allows them to continue to claim that they're stopping and working on stopping their use of child slaves. And they're benefiting enormously from the cheap, cheap cocoa they're getting from Cote d'Ivoire in Ghana that is harvested by child slaves. In this new case, we have eight additional, eight new plaintiffs that more recently were trafficked and then forced to harvest cocoa for a period of years before they escaped. And they're telling the exact same story as that original group in the 2005 case that they were rounded up by a labor broker in Mali who promised them good-paying jobs in Cote d'Ivoire harvesting uh, cocoa. And when they got there, they were told, nope, actually, uh, you're going to work on this plantation and we're going to feed you or you're going to starve. Um, they were in the middle of nowhere. They don't have the same language. They had not a penny in their pocket, and they're about 12 years old. And they listened to the direction given them, and it took them, depending on the child, between two and four years before they were mature enough to say, I, I don't care, you know, I'm going to get out of here somehow, and they, they managed to escape. But it's a horrible case. And then while all of this is going on and our research and their promises to end child slavery, uh, the last fact I want to throw out there is that in October of 2020, the University of Chicago's NORC Institute was funded by the U.S. Department of Labor to do a five-year study from 2015 to 20 of whether child labor had improved or, or had gotten worse in the, the cocoa sector. NORC issued its report, and you, you alluded to the number, but they found that child labor, during all this time that these big companies are claiming they're really working on this to stop profiting from child slaves, uh, the number went way up. There is now 1.58 million children harvesting cocoa in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, and that 95% of those are performing the worst forms of child labor, including using machetes and other sharp tools, and they're applying pesticides and herbicides without any protective equipment. Those, those actions are illegal under international law and any other law. Uh, and it's, so it's getting worse. Uh, who knows what they actually are doing as they claim to be ending their child labor, but they sure haven't ended their profiting from, from child slavery. And it's just ridiculous. It's horrible. I have a question with respect to the uh, Supreme Court pending decision. This is such an important opinion. And unfortunately, there hasn't been enough press about its importance because it, it purports to basically gut the ATS. 
because most of the cases are against corporations. They're not against personal defendants. And I am fairly confident, as uh, you are, that the justices thought that this was not appropriate. Just as Gorsuch pointed out that the ATS historically instituted actions in REM against pirate ships. So it logically follows that there should be actions against corporations. And I was quite dismayed that the government was seeming to be even more uh, vociferously arguing that there was a problem with corporate liability than even the defendants, <laughs> which is quite upsetting. But their argument just makes absolutely no sense because they're arguing that under after Jensen and foreign corporations not being liable under the ATS, we can't discriminate against U.S. corporations in this manner. But isn't that the whole point of jurisdiction that we do actually discriminate based on the the court having control and jurisdiction over the defendant. If we don't police our co- corporations, who will? Who will hold them to account? And the fact that, that they could argue before the court, before the bench, that this is somehow going to be problematic from a foreign policy perspective. I mean, why? Every nation holds its domestic corporations accountable. And if we don't hold our corporations accountable, who will? I mean, don't don't other countries want us to hold our corporations accountable for extreme human rights abuses? Yes, you hit the nail on the head. They were arguing for this false equivalence when, and again, it's just shameless, but in the Jensen decision, Arab Bank versus Jensen that you that you mentioned, the court did hold that foreign corporations could not be sued under the ATS. But it was precisely because other governments had complained that it's their job to police their corporations. And that uh, that is absolutely then consistent with saying that the U.S. must police its corporations. And uh, a fun fact that uh, your listeners might not know is that, as you noted, uh, the the Solicitor General was arguing even more enthusiastically for that position than the defendants, uh, and that was a change of position. Uh, in two prior cases, including Royal Dutch Shell versus Kiobel, uh, the the Solicitor General argued that corporations could be sued under international law. And in the Jensen decision, they argued that domestic corporations could be sued in the U.S. using the ATS, and they made the distinction between foreign and domestic corporations. But then Trump's solicitor general went before the court and said, nope, no corporation can be sued. And one of the justices, I think it was Thomas, picked new, I mean, they all know that. They know that that's a change in position which really makes it particularly intellectually dishonest. And a group of folks that filed amicus briefs in our in support of our position, they did send a formal letter to the new acting, the, the, the Biden acting solicitor general and asked her to uh, withdraw the brief from the government that was an embarrassment and intellectually dishonest position for the government to take. Uh, we don't know if they're going to do that, but... I think everyone in the room understood that it was a dishonest uh, position for the government to take. So, yeah, we're we're optimistic. But if we lose, yeah, the ATS was already largely gutted by the Royal Dutch Shell versus Kiobel decision that limited extraterritorial application 
of the ATS to cases where there was significant U.S. conduct, where participation in the, in the crime occurred in the United States, which caused a number of excellent cases to be thrown out. Um, and I, I just have to add to me with great frustration that the, the, the Kiobel decision itself was a five to four split with the conservatives saying that there had to be this domestic connection. Uh, and the, the conservatives, it was led by Scalia, who was still alive when the Kiobel decision came down. Uh, the the uh, conservative branch led of the court that was led by Scalia, they, they labeled themselves very aggressively as originalists. We're not supposed to speculate about intent. We're not supposed to use our own views to substitute for the drafters of legislation. You just read the statute and apply it. That's Scalia's method. Well, in this case, the, the alien tort statute is exactly 16 words. There's nothing said one way or the other about extraterritorial application. There's certainly nothing said about requiring U.S. conduct for the statute to apply, which seems inconsistent with why we had it. If there's U.S. Content, conduct, then our criminal laws will cover it. Uh, but Scalia and the four other conservatives, they, they, they embedded upon the 16 words of the ATS this, this large and complicated test that you have to show that the U.S. Con that the ATS claims touch and concern the territory of the United States, and uh, there's a few other words added. But this was the most just obvious, intellectually dishonest position they took to uh, invent this new standard and impose it upon the ATS. So that made it already largely gutted. I didn't even use it in the Cobalt case because I didn't think I could show that the conduct touched and concerned the United States, whatever the hell that means. Um, but uh, if they say corporations can't be sued, yeah, that will largely annihilate the statute. Uh, we and many other human rights groups are uh, ready to go with uh, an amendment to fix it, a very simple fix making clear that corporations can be sued and that the statute applies extraterritorially. Uh, unfortunately, right now, we're you know probably number 200 in line to get the Biden White House to save us from uh, the right-wing courts and uh, amend statutes. But it, it's there. If we can hold on to the Senate for a bit uh, after 2022, I think that there's a good chance we'll see some revisions to basic human rights law that will improve them and restore them to their original luster. I hope so. And I, and I do think that that's necessary because I agree with you. The touch and concern element is extremely problematic and completely unnecessary and um, to be imputed. But um, one last question on the Supreme Court case. You mentioned intellectual dishonesty, and it does seem that this argument that they're saying, hey, no, we're not trying to gut the ATS because there'll still be personal liability, but they damn well know the, corp the nature of corporate decision-making. There's such a diffusion that the personal liability will be very problematic to show because... Absolutely. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh and they also know that in two decisions, uh, one is uh, Iqbal versus Ashcraft, and the other, uh, the name escapes me right now, but the Supreme Court in two different decisions uh, severely limited 
the ability of lawyers to sue anybody because you have to have such detailed evidence before you get discovery uh, to go forward. So these these pleading decisions gutted notice pleading and require that you have the evidence that you would need before you get discovery. And many cases have been, we called it Iqbald, where the, the Iqbal decision was applied to say, no, no, you can't have conclusory allegations. You need detailed, factual allegations. Well, if you put a gun to my head right now, after all of these years of litigation, I'd have a hard time naming a name of a person buried in this Nestle uh, giant corporation that's the person responsible for their child labor policies. I, I'm going to definitely, if we lose this case, we're going to try to find out more names and name those individuals and sue them uh, as individuals. That'll be their reward if they win. Um, but you can't just assume that the CEO is today responsible for what happened when they enslaved children. It's it's a real challenge because we don't know many of the names inside these giant giant corporations, and that's the point. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that that's uh, what they're aiming to do. And of course, they tell you, oh, don't sue under the ATS, sue under the TVPRA, and then they'll say, well, actually, the TVPRA is inapplicable because <laughs> it's a game, isn't it? Yes. I have greatly extended my time with you um, and you have so graciously provided your um, acute insight on these pertinent issues to our audience. But I have one final question for you. How can our audience help end the use of children to mine cobalt for the devices that we use each day? And for a lot of us, the cars that we drive, thinking we're somehow doing something for the social good by not driving a gas guzzler and so on, how, what can we do as consumers, as maybe shareholders of these public corporations to end the, the bondage of these children that are cobbled by cobalt, that are chained to chocolate, and so that we have products that don't have this stain upon them? Yes, thank you very much. Um, the um, Really, the, the main thing that people should be doing is contacting the companies directly and say, I'm not going to do business with you until you have demonstrated that you've stopped profiting from enslaved children or forced child labor. On our website, again, uh, www.iradvocates.org, there's something that uh, the, the people who know about tech call a card, spelled C-A-A-R-D, I think, that is a way to click on, you click on it, and it gives you a way to directly email uh, each of these companies and tell them that. And we're, we understand, in fact, I will confess, I have a Dell laptop and a Apple iPhone, which I ha I've had, be <laughs> I had before I sued them. Uh, well, we understand that everyone needs their, their communication devices. So we're not saying throw your phone in the water. I'm saying... Make sure Apple knows, for example, uh, that you're not going to get that new upgrade, whatever it is now, the 12 or the 8, whatever it is, uh, that you're not going to purchase any more of their products until this problem is solved. And with the cocoa companies, it's a whole lot easier. I mean, you can tell Nestle, Mars, Hershey, Cargill, uh, Mondelez, and Barry Calibut 
you're never going to buy another piece of their chocolate knowing that it was harvested by enslaved children. And until that time comes, uh, they've lost your business. Um, that's the kind of communication that will, I think, get their attention. So we've always said that litigation alone isn't enough because it takes so long. It's expensive. I, I don't want to have to sue every company that is doing something horrible. We need this help of the consumer pressure, the consumer arm to uh, uh, put the pressure on the companies in the only language they understand that they're going to lose business. And uh, I hope that more people can do that. With respect to the chocolate, I want folks to know that that doesn't mean you have to give up chocolate. Uh, if you go to the a, a friend of mine, uh, Ann Riggs runs an organization called Slave Free Chocolate. And if you go to their website, slavefreechocolate.org, she lists about 30 uh, smaller, you know, true artisanal chocolate companies that have been thoroughly vetted. Uh, that make wonderful products that were not harvested by child labor. So that's what I would ask you to do. And if you own stock in any of these companies, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, they have an investor relations office. Every company does say that uh, you're, you're embarrassed to hold a share of Apple stock. Uh, however profitable the company is, it's not enough to justify maiming and killing children. Um, they'll probably listen to shareholders more than they will um, uh, just even a consumer. Um, most shareholders are ignorant of this, and I'm trying to do more uh, communication. As I mentioned, I spoke to the Tesla annual shareholders meeting, and we're going to do that again this year. Um, I think that uh, it's it's a slow process, and a lot of people are busy and don't really want to take that extra minute, but if we can't get people to care about enslaving and maiming and killing children, then we're doomed. I mean, that's what I tell my colleagues and staff, that if we can't win these cases with a combination of law and consumer pressure, then what, what case could we win? I mean, we've got photographs of maimed children that Major Cobalt. We have photographs of kids 12 years old using these sharp machetes to hack down cocoa pods. If that doesn't move people as human beings, then I, I don't know what will. Yeah, that is a pertinent point. And uh, we have to stop externalizing the consequences of uh, our own actions. We're all connected. I have confidence that people do care and people will call and things will change. So I do too. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this all these years if I didn't fundamentally feel that there's a right way to do it, and maybe we're zeroing in on it now, but that people do care. They're, they're not going to do a, a lot of effort, but this is a pretty minor thing to, to get someone to do that would really help the problem. I agree. Thank you so much, Terry, for your time and your insight today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me and allowing me to uh, speak to your your listeners. And I, I'm I'm, I'm going to see that there's a suddenly a great surge in communications to these evil companies that have come from your listeners. I hope so. I hope so. Get out there and tell them you do not want <laughs> devices that have maimed children and killed children. We want devices that are free from such servitude and horrible conditions. Thank you. 
I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.